as David approaches his final years, he reflects upon his life. Overwhelmed by the love and mercy of God, he breaks forth in an Alleluia psalm of praise. This is the 50th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, and Exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 22. Second Samuel and chapter 22. A lengthy reading, and yet to pick up where we left off last week, I shall read the entire text, the entire 51 stanzas. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all of his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And he did hear my voice out of his temple and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him. Dark waters and thick clouds of skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomforted them. And the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me. For they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyesight. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward, thou wilt show thyself unsavory. And the afflicted people, thou wilt save. But thine eyes or upon the haughty, that thou mayest bring them down. For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop. By my God have I leaped over a wall. As for God, his ways is perfect. 
the word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? And who is a rock save our God? God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet, and setteth me upon my high places. He teaches my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken in mine arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, so that my feet did not slip. I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them, and turned not again until I had consumed them. And I have consumed them and wounded them, that they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet, for thou hast girded me with strength to battle. Them that rose up against me hast thou subdued under me. Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies, that I might destroy them that hate me. They looked, but there was none to save, even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. Then did I beat them as small as the dust of the earth, I did stamp them as the mire of the street and did spread them abroad. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people. Thou hast kept me to be head of the heathen, a people which I knew not shall serve me. Strangers shall submit themselves unto me. As soon as they hear, they shall be obedient unto me. Strangers shall fade away and they shall be afraid out of their close places. The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God that avengeth me, and that bringeth down the people under me, and that bringeth me forth from mine enemies. That also has lifted me up high above them, that rose up against me, that was delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and I will sing praises unto thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his king and showeth mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. The Hebrew writer writing in Hebrews in chapter 11. Hebrews in chapter 11. One verse only this morning. Verse 6. By the same spirit, the writer says this. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is once again the gospel of victory presented unto us again this day. Now that David's enemies have been vanquished, the trial of God's chastisement complete, David offers up a significant psalm to highlight his love for God, as he reflects upon his life before God, as he reflects upon the fact that he has been forgiven of God, and that, that God had showed him mercy. He reflects upon these things at the close of his life. And in this psalm, he commemorates God's mercy upon the entirety of his life. You might look at this psalm as David's last will and testament. Although this chapter appears before the final testing of David in the canon, it is actually his last declaration. The last declaration of David speaking of God's mercy, how God's mercy was unchanging and enduring forever. And so as he reflects upon his life, he reflects upon the care and providential mercy that God had, that God had followed him throughout his life, throughout all of his exploits, both good 
and bad. And he does so through a historical narrative as he details the greatness of God's directing mercy throughout his life. As we saw last week, David lived his life in the eye of God. We too live our lives in the eye of God. And that's something we must embrace. We should be sensitive to everything that we do because everything that we do is open and and naked before God, even in the most secret and intimate things. David understood this and throughout his life he experienced the energizing influence of God upon his life along with the orchestration of his life's events as God was orchestrating his life before him in order to protect him and to secure the kingdom under him. David's Hallelujah Psalm forges a pathway of God's faithfulness as he faithfully delivered David all of the experiences that David had to undergo, especially through the many trials and temptations that he faced as God's man. And it's interesting, he seems to conclude the first half of his song with verse 29 in 2 Samuel and chapter 22 and verse 29. He seems to conclude this first half when he says, For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. And he sets forth clearly the wonderful comforting fact that God was his directing and supportive lamp which acted as a light in some of the most darkest places during his life. Now David is not only, however, speaking of himself, as we saw also last week, he's also speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also speaking to us. This is something for us to take hold upon. What David is saying is that through Through the light of God's covenant word, his promises are what we are to hold on to whenever we are in the darkness of difficulty. And that's David's life. David's life lived in the darkness of difficulty. His own sin brought chastisements upon him. His own wretchedness brought chastisements upon him. And yet he lived in the eye of God and he trusted God. And this is God's counsel through David for us. And so only by reflecting and meditating, pondering and rehearsing Upon the word of God, can we have a clear directive when we find ourselves in the throes of chaos, confusion, and fear? David is simply restating what he said in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Because I live in the sight of God, under the watchful eye of God. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so it was God's promises that assisted David in walking through the valley of death's darkness without succumbing to its seductive and destroying power. But before we continue to expound the remainder of David's testimony of God's goodness, we should be asking some fundamental questions. What made David so resolute in his trust Godward? What what gave this man? He is just and was just like us. You know, sometimes we look at David, the great giant killer, and say, he's, he's bigger than life. He's just a man. In fact, he was just the runt of the litter, but just a man. So what made him so mighty before other men, what made him so resolute in his trust Godward? And the answer is quite simple. God had intervened in his life and by the intervention of his spirit, God granted David his gift of faith. David was a man of faith. And this is why David could confidently declare, what time I am afraid, I will 
exercise my faith. Now, that's not what he says in the psalm. He actually says, I will trust in thee, which is the same thing. I will be exercised in trust. Despite what anything looks like, I will trust in thee. David's response to fear and uncertainty, confusion and chaos was faith. And whenever the fiery dots of fear, confusion, sorrow, despair and hopelessness were launched at David, he lifted up his shield of faith to meet them head on. Faith is the essential component of God's goodness conferred upon the Christian so that he may be able to navigate the difficulties of life unafraid in hope that God is present in all trials and tribulations and working out all things for the benefit of his church, his children, and the advancement of his kingdom and his glory. That's what faith is all about. It's the essential component whereby we do not fall under adversity. And no other gift should be highly regarded as faith. All of the gifts are great, all of the gifts are wonderful, but no other gift should be as highly regarded as faith. It is this grace, it is something that God gives us that is lifted high above all other graces to the point where the Hebrew writer would say then in our New Testament reading, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. It's the most important thing. And why is that? Because faith connects us with God. Faith connects the fearful child of God with all of the promises of God, enabling him or her to great acts of courage beyond what could naturally be executed by the flesh. The faith given to God's people is not just something theological. It's it's substantial. It's real. It can be shown. It can be felt. It can be seen. It is substantial. Faith is the substance, the scripture says, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In other words, there's evidence to those people who are of faith. Without this grace, without the grace of faith, there is no pleasing God. These statements are found in what is known in the chapter called the heroes of faith. When God parades before his people, those faithful men and women. In other words, as a result of their faith, In Hebrews in chapter 11, as a result of their faith and their trust in God, they were able to do things superhumanly. They were able to do mightily in behalf of God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom. Note the catalog of these heroes of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 4, notice how God accentuates this grace of faith. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go up out of a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. Through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And they were persuaded of them and embraced them. How? By faith. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. How? By faith. 
The Apostle Paul comments on faith and its place of importance in Ephesians chapter 2. In contrast to good works. Notice verse 8 and verse 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should both, but rather by faith. The gift of faith causes us to look beyond what is happening here and away from ourselves for any and every merit of salvation to the Lord Jesus and His work in behalf of us. So faith also causes us to look beyond and away from every evil and fearful situation that confronts us. We focus by faith upon God, the God who has promised that He will be with us and that no temptation will be given whereby there is not a way to escape. And so when we have this grace of faith, We need to exercise it so that when things happen, we go and we approach it, we confront it by faith. And as we trust God, we look for evidences of trusting God as we seek to obey Him in response to His grace. For by grace are ye saved and not of yourself. Now Paul concludes the argument in Romans 3.28 when he says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Notice how faith is so important. But even though David experienced great faith, he could only have trusted God by the exercise of that faith. After the initial conversion experience, one does not automatically become a David. There's a progression. After we have embraced the knowledge of God through God's intervention in our lives, God begins to strengthen our faith through various experiences and trials. In fact, the way our faith is actually strengthened is through trials. Trials that God ordains for us. He brings us to a place of confusion, chaos, and fear, a place of uncertainty, so that we might be exercised. And although we are given a measure of faith at the time of our conversion, it must be exercised in order for it to grow. Now Solomon speaks to this in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 13. Notice. He says, And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven, This sore travail hath God had given to the sons of men. Notice, this sore travail God has given to the sons of men so as to be exercised in it. So important was this lesson that Solomon repeats it two chapters later in verse 10 of chapter 3. In verse 10 of chapter 3, he repeats, he says, I have seen the travail which God had given to the sons of men so as to be exercised in it. So that when trials and tribulations, confusion, chaos, and difficulties come your way, it is God actually preparing you a meal of trials and tribulations so that you can be exercised in your faith. The New Testament writer is very clear, concurring with Solomon in Hebrews 12.11. Notice what he says. Now no chastisement or no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless... Afterward, after this chastisement, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The message is clear. Without difficulties and chastisements, our faith cannot be strengthened. And so while the grace of faith is given initially as a mustard seed, it is a powerful tool. It is by its exercising. It grows into hero-like faith as we see in the catalog of the Hebrews in chapter 11. Now Jesus mentions this mustard seed faith and points to the power of even that little faith in addressing his disciples that seemed to lack even that faith. And this prompted the apostles to ask the Lord for an increased faith. 
Notice in Luke chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamore tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But what they missed in asking the question is that the only way they could have an increase of faith is if it is exercised by chastisements, by difficulties, by the trials of life. And this is why we are never to despise the chastisement of the Lord, the chasing of our Lord, because it is by those chastisements that our faith is tested, that our faith is strengthened, so that we see the weak links of our faith, and then we pray more and more and more. You see, David had been tried and tested over and over and over to the point where he is now revisiting the mercy of God in his behalf during his many trials and difficulties. Notice how David then connects God's directing light as the energizing power behind his warrior skills. In verse 30, we read this. 2 Samuel 22:30. Notice, for by thee, because of thy great power, because I have lived in the eye of God, because of the great faith and the promises of God that thou hast given me, for by thee, notice he's given credence to God, I have run through a troop by my God. I have leaped over a wall. You see, David is equipped to give God all of the honor and glory for his victories. He doesn't say, like the Pharisee, I thank God I'm not like every man. I I ran through a troop. I leaped over a wall. I destroyed my enemies. I was a good shot with my gun or my bow or my arrows or whatever. No, by God. But notice, not only by God, but by my God. He owns him. By my God. David never says, I did it my way, or I did it myself, or it was by my hand, or I'm the reason for my victory. No, he humbles himself. And he states the plain truth that it was the Lord. Even his psalm singing and prophesying, he attributes to God. Notice, in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Even my own music was because of God. Even my own psalm singing was a result of God. In verses 31 through 43 of 2 Samuel 22, David then tells of his warrior successes and he attributes all of them to God. Notice verse 31. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a, notice, he is a buckler to all them that trust in him. So there it is. He did it and those who have faith. This is another encouragement to trust God, since he has never failed in the execution of his promises. Not also the reference to the tactical gear that Paul says we too are to put on from Ephesians 6. You see, Paul is simply reading the Old Testament. He's reading the Psalms, and he's taking these messages, he's bringing them to the New Testament church, and he speaks of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And then David in verse 32 he says, for who is God save Yahweh, the covenant God? And who is a rock save our God? God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. Notice, it's all God. David refers to the steadfastness of God as a rock, a foundation. It is God who should be our foundation, whereby we build our lives upon. This was the message that the Lord gave to the disciples. When the parable of the man who built his house upon a rock was to be given... He contrasted that with the uncertainty of a sandy foundation of man's wisdom. 
The intent of his admonition was to centralize all of our purposes on the Christ and his kingdom by faith. We build our house upon God so that when the floodgates of fear, trials, doubts, fears and trials, tribulations, confusions, chaos, when they all come down upon us as a as it did to that man, as a torrential rainstorm, we can be confident in the promises of God because we built our house upon God, upon his rock, his foundation, the foundation being Christ. Jesus likens the man who builds his entire existence upon the rock of Christ's word as wise, whereas the other man who trusted in his own merit as foolish. David then speaks to the directing power of God. See, David understood that God was the energizing power that directed him in all that he did to make his way righteous. Notice in verse 34 and 35. First, he maketh my feet like hind's feet. David didn't do it. God did it and setteth me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken in mine arms. So what is so wonderful about David's statement is that he's not arguing against what God did by by saying, you know, God controlled me. He's not arguing and saying, oh, oh, you know, God made me do this. I really wanted to do it myself. No, he's not saying that that he was upset that God was completely in control of him. He was not complaining that he might have been used by God in a robotic fashion. You know, that's what we hear today. Well, we're not robots. Would to God that we were his robots. Would to God that he would make us do righteousness all day long and mortify sin over and over and over. Would to God that he would use us that way. Brother David embraces the fact that God made him do something. Too often reprobate men kick against the doctrine that God is sovereign over the actions of men. You know, it's funny how people say, well, God is sovereign over the weather. God is sovereign over this. When it comes to me, oh, no, no, no. God is not sovereign over me because I have free will. Well, your will is a mess. So David is not arguing that God is sovereign over men. He's embracing it. The reprobate denied the directing power of God in their lives as if to say that they are sovereign and their will is their own. You see, David embraces the reality of God's sovereignty knowing that God will direct him for good. How often do you, in your prayer closet, say, Lord, use me. Make me do what is right. Make me to do your will. Make me to do it. Cause me to walk in thy statutes. Cause me this way. Cause me that way. That is the prayer of David. He, he recognizes God made him to do these glorious things. He embraces the reality that God is directing him. Paul too understood this phenomena when he wrote to the church at Philippi, when he says this in 2.13 of Philippians, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. No, we don't like that verse, do we? We kick against that verse because we want to be God. And we want to be sovereign. No, it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We need to ask God more often to direct us for good. Thy will be done, not my will. We need to pray, Lord, make me to do this thing and that thing for your kingdom's glory. For without your directing power, I can do nothing. We can do nothing without God doing it in us and through us and in behalf of his kingdom. And yet... We can do all things as long as Christ is directing us, as long as Christ is strengthening us. David understood that. David's acknowledgement that the Lord was leading him made him successful because he was susceptible to God's power at work in him. And by that humbling susceptibility, 
He was able to do great and wonderful things. We need to make ourselves susceptible to God. If we want to be successful in the glorification of His kingdom, in doing great works for God, we need to relinquish ourselves to God's power and His directing influence. Note how God made David both swift and strong, because that's what a warrior needs to be. He needs to be swift and strong. Verse 34 and 35. He maketh my feet like hinds feet, and setteth me upon my high places. Quick on your feet. He also teaches my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken in my arms. Notice, this is just incredible that God is doing this. Now in verse 36, David reflects upon the armor of God once again, and this time focusing upon the shield of faith, because it is faith that wins the day. Notice 36 of Second Samuel 22. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. The power of God's gentleness was an invigorating force and it made David great. Note how it was God's gentle mercy upon David as his elect son that made him great. And Once again, David attributes his greatness to God in verse 37. Thou hast enlarged my steps unto me so that my feet did not slip. So here David comments on the sure footing that God gave him. That sure footing is the word of God. That is what we stand upon. We stand upon the word of God. David's steps were guided by scripture. David's steps were guided by the law of God. And in order for him to see clearly the pathway that he should walk, he used the word of God. And the statement points us right back to the man who built his house upon the rock, a sure foundation. If we want our paths to be straight, we use the word of God. The weapon of our warfare that keeps us from slipping is the word of God. Notice 38 and 39. I have pursued my enemies. Now notice what that is not saying. I'm just amazed at the things that the Bible doesn't say. They're almost as powerful as the things that the Bible does say. It doesn't say I retreated from mine enemies. It also doesn't say I waited for the rapture because my enemies were strong. It doesn't say, I'm afraid of my enemies, so I'm hiding in the church and waiting for Jesus to come again. It doesn't say, I'm afraid of my enemies, so I'm going to try to have political or economic or social solutions to my problem. No, I have pursued my enemies. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, must pursue our enemies who are seeking to destroy Christendom and the kingdom of God. I have pursued my enemies, and he was successful. And destroyed them. And you think about David. His life was a mess. And yet, victorious in everything that he put his hand to. I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them. And turned not again until I consumed them. Notice, he didn't just pursue them to get afraid and then he ran away. No, I kept up the pressure. I kept up the pressure. I stuck to my knitting. I kept it up over and over, day and day out. Day. And you know, that happens to us, or at least it should happen to us when we're dealing with sin. We have to keep the pressure on our sin. We can't just say, well, I got rid of that sin, and now I'll just sit back, and then the sin comes up again on you. We're not watchful enough. But notice, he pursued his enemies And he kept up until they were consumed. And I have consumed them and wounded them that they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet. Some might say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. David's not saying, I love them to death. I brought them the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Either they are subdued or they are destroyed. 
This is the language of Christian warfare. David is speaking in a life and death situation. We have been so dumbed down that we don't see that we live in a life and death situation. Does it have to be a time when we wake up, when they're at your door, making Christianity illegal, that we would finally wake up? Well, then it's too late. In verse 40, David reminds us that when he faced off against Goliath, it was not the giant that ran on him, but rather it was David that pursued the giant. And notice why in verse 40, for thou hast girded me with strength to battle. If you don't think that you are girded with strength to battle, then you need to be girded with strength to battle. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. How well do you know the Word of God that you can wield it to the point where you will be victorious against your enemies? How often do you study the Word of God? Do you contemplate the Word of God? Do you meditate upon the Word of God? Do you pray that God would open your eyes to the Word of God, that you would see the depth and the riches and the glory of the Word of God? Or is it just on the Lord's Day when you hear a sermon preached? If you are to compare and contrast the time sitting around your television with the time that you sit around your Bible, you should be well ashamed. I hope you're not, but you might be. How often are you digging into the word of truth? For thou hast girded me with strength to battle. And herein is the tactic of a valiant warrior. He takes the offensive position without fear because he was skilled. I think that's our problem today. I think that is our problem today. We are afraid to go on the offensive against the enemy. And so we are forced to go on the offensive because we've been forced on the defensive. I think the reason for this lack of faith and lack of conviction and the promise that God will fight for us is because we really don't trust the Scriptures. But we have to be sure that our cause must be His cause. Notice, Thou hast also given me, verse 41, the neck of mine enemies, that I might destroy them that hate me. These are furious, imprecatory statements of destruction which give us a window into God's mind as to how He is going to deal with the adversaries of the Gospel. Now think about this. When Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so send I you. In other words, you model Christ. Solomon borrows from his father's statement in Proverbs 1 as he too speaks by inspiration as to the anger of God in light of his enemies. When Christ came, he came to take vengeance, to bring righteousness back to a land which had fallen in disarray. But notice what Solomon says. This is God speaking. And when you think about these words, I hope it strikes fear into everyone's heart. By inspiration of God, he says, How long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in this scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you, because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said at naught all my counsel, and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. 
for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Then David writes this, Did I beat them as small as the dust of the earth? I did stamp them as the mire of the street and did spread them abroad. This is warrior language. This is the victory song of the Nazarite warrior. This is Christ's victory song. This is David speaking as a great type of Christ. This is his victory song. The song of the warrior, Nazarite priest. A great king who has both borne the heat of the harshest battle and has vanquished all of his enemies by the mercy of God, and has also enjoyed the great blessing of God because of his victories. These are prophetic words of the Christ, the Christ of God spoken through David, who David here represents. Herein is the message of the gospel, because it is Christ who is the Nazarite warrior priest who perfectly trusted God. It was he alone through the power of God who vanquished the enemy of sin, death, the grave, and the condemning power of God's holy law. But he also goes out into the enemy's camp and destroys them as well, all those who would oppress the people of God. In the first portion of the next verse, verse 44, David adds another aspect to this victory song. David speaks of his own people who had betrayed him and who sought to strive against his magisterial authority. But he does this almost as a footnote before speaking of his total dominion over the nations of the world. Note verse 44. That was also delivered me from the strivings of my people. That was kept me to be the head of the heathen, a people which I knew not shall serve me. Now speaking of the gospel, he's going out there to a people that didn't know him. They weren't Hebrews, they were in the world. So that we are absolutely clear. So that we are absolutely clear as to whom David is actually referring to. Daniel uses the same language of universal dominion when he sees the vision of Christ's coronation after the resurrection at the ascension. Now notice that what David is saying. Now he's speaking of Christ, as Christ. Speaking as Christ. That Christ, David, was delivered from the strivings of his people. He has kept him to be the head of the heathen. That's where he's the head. A people which he didn't know are now going to be subjugated and will serve him. Daniel says this, chapter 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Same language. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You see, this is language. Verse 44 of 2 Samuel 22 is language of total, comprehensive, and universal victory in the confines of time and history. When David penned Psalm 2, he stated very clearly that Christ, the dominion man, the Lord Jesus, would be given the nations for his inheritance along with the uttermost portions of the earth for his possession. That is total, comprehensive victory. In time and in history. This would be realized as a result of the first advent of the incarnate Christ going forward. This victory was to be consummated on the earth. 
not after the earth is destroyed, and it does not imply, nor should we infer, that the receipt of this inheritance was to be realized after Jesus comes a second time at the end of the world because he failed the first time. It is absolute lunacy. It is ridiculous, and it borders on blasphemy that the king of the universe failed in his first attempt to conquer the nations. The language of Psalm 2 anticipates all of this to begin at his first advent progressing throughout the church age and finally culminating when his people finally mature in faith and obedience. So the coming of the Christ at his first appearance, this was what was promised. This was the promised visitation which would signal the beginning of his total dominion and subjugation of all those that rebel against him. And knowing this, David says in verse 45 and 46, Strangers shall subdue themselves unto me as soon as they hear. Those elect that were strangers and pilgrims, when they hear the gospel, they will immediately be subdued. They shall be obedient unto me, David says. That's what happens at the regeneration. When we hear the gospel of God, we are no more strangers. We are now fellow heirs with Christ. We are subdued under Him. We obey Him. But then in verse 46, very odd, It says, strangers shall fade away and they shall be afraid out of their close places. Well, then that doesn't work. If these strangers in verse 45 are the believers now being subjugated by the gospel presentation and obedient, and then in verse 46, strangers shall fade away, they'll be afraid of their close places. Several particulars are pointed out in these uh, two verses beyond the fact that the rebels of the gospel would be vanquished. Now, of course, their submission, strangers are going to be submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be obedient. David says that their subjugation results in that obedience as soon as they hear. These submissive individuals are called strangers, and that's what Paul calls us, strangers and pilgrims. Their responsive obedience to the king can only come after their hearing. The scripture calls the saints of God strangers, It seems as if David is referring to the conversion of the elect as they hear the word of God. That's very clear. And that's why it's so important to declare the gospel. So that these strangers hear and then they are given the grace of faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But then the strangest thing. Strangers shall fade away and they shall be afraid of their close place. Well, the first statement is plainly understood. But the second statement is difficult because it is a mistranslation. The Hebrew of the second part is confusing, even misleading, because of its English translation. Here's what it actually says, and you can check me on this by reading the Hebrew. It actually says that these strangers shall be girded out of their strongholds. Not fade away, but girded out. It's exactly that word, girded out. In other words, they'll be girded. Their loins will be girded, and they'll come out of this their closed places as the warriors of Christ. So taken together with the rest of verse 45 and 6, this refers to a submission by the strangers that they will be strengthened to the point where they will be brought out of their rebellious strongholds to be submissive and obedient to the Lord, girded with strength as the elect of God. Now that makes perfect sense. In fact, that is so encouraging that it goes right along with everything that David has already been saying. David then breaks forth into further exultation as he blesses the living God in verse 47. You think about this. So David is, is it, it's a crescendo of a psalm. 
He's going on and on. Now David is, is remembering this that God did and that that God did and that that God did. And he's blessing God and blessing God. And he's almost out of his mind in, in just in exultation. And, and, he, and then he breaks out in verse 47. He says, The Lord liveth. And blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. How could he contain himself? After going through all of this and knowing all of the foibles and the warts that he had in his life, finally breaks out with the God that we would have an experience like that. And then finally David reiterates God's care for the warrior king. It is God that avengeth me and that bringeth down the peoples under me and that bringeth me forth from mine enemies. Thou also hath lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. God had exalted David far above his enemies out of his electing love and mercy. And when all is said and done, there's only one fitting overall response. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen. I will sing praises unto thy name. For he is the tower of salvation for his king and showeth mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. He ends by thanking God for all that God had done. He reflects upon his life as he is ending his life and he can only thank God. Thus David perfectly ends this hallelujah psalm of victory with thanksgiving, declaring it before the entire world so that they too might contemplate God as the tower of their salvation because it was God's mercy toward David that upheld him. It is God's mercy toward us that upholds us, even showing that mercy to the future generations of his people as we continue to declare the word of God. We shall return to the final chapters of King David's life when we continue in the exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.